0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. There's a lot of talk in finance about the value of the sustainable infrastructure industry. My guest today, Trenton Allen, the Managing Director and CEO of Sustainable Capital Advisors, is an expert on all the angles from raising capital to navigating public-private partnerships. I'm particularly excited about our conversation on how greening buildings not only reduces energy costs, but also provides thousands of maintenance and energy efficiency jobs, driving economic development in cities across the U.S. Welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, Trenton.
1: Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you, today.
0: Yeah, listen, I'm excited about our program. And by the way, congratulations on your recent appointment to Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm's Energy Advisory Board. That's the SEAB. That's quite an honor.
1: Well, thank you. It's a, it's a, it's a privilege and uh, an honor to be asked and to serve in this particular capacity. And really, I think it's, you know, I, I look forward to just sharing uh, the experience uh, from my career, particularly in the world of energy and finance. But also recognize that, you know, I bring to it a lot of experience of people that I've worked with and clients that I've had over the years uh, in the industry. So I'm just uh, thankful that I have this opportunity to really uh, provide some input, but also to really uh, just serve uh, in this particular capacity. Thank you.
0: Well, listen. That's that's great, and I, I look forward to hearing about your good work. Uh, we need we need a lot more folks like you engaged in these <laughs> kinds of processes inside the Beltway in in D.C. for sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> before you launched Sustainable Capital Advisors, you spent ten years as a director at Citibank, where you managed thirteen billion dollars in energy infrastructure projects, primarily for U.S. municipal utilities. So you really know how capital allocation impacts every aspect of green building and energy efficiency conversion. Now you're consulting across the infrastructure spectrum. Our listeners are investors, financial advisors, and asset managers. What would you say about the current challenges and opportunities in sustainable infrastructure?
1: Thanks. you know, at at the top of it, I think there's incredible opportunity. So when we look at sort of what the projections are of just even the capital needs over the next five years, Uh, we see the numbers being, whether it's in solar or energy efficiency or battery storage um, and water infrastructure, over $300 billion. And so that's a lot of financing and a lot of needs that are happening there, Uh, not just from sort of what's needed within buildings and what is the demand potentially for those particular products, but also as we think about a solution uh, related to sort of the impact from a greenhouse gas emission standpoint, to being able to make a contribution to addressing and dealing with climate change. And so really this opportunity spears from sort of what is some of the, particularly in buildings, uh, what are the ability to uh, convert to new technologies to reduce the amount of energy, how to meet with some of the um, unfunded maintenance that exists in our building stock, not just in commercial, but also as we think about in uh, residential, but also thinking about sort of municipal and government buildings and nonprofits. But also we think about the ability to deploy solar and other types of technologies, uh, both at the utility scale, but also at the distributed scale across uh, across the country in, in, in residents and commercial. And so really that $300 billion or so over the next five years uh, can grow, can grow significantly. And I think the challenge is sort of how we think about financing this uh, brain capital bear in a way that aligns with sort of how capital has been looking generally to intergage in this particular sector and to make sure that we have, um, that, that, that there are investment opportunities, both for sort of the large scale, you know, sort of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars transactions all the way down to the 15, $20,000 transaction. So we need to be able to meet the scale and the opportunity of capital available for large scale projects, but also many of these smaller projects that will be crucial for being able to meet this particular goal.
0: Now, Trenton, uh, this question isn't on our list, but I live in New Pulse, New York, which is about 70 miles, 70 or 80 miles north of New York City. Uh I go into New York City on a fairly regular basis for work, and it, it strikes me that the type of building construction that is happening in big cities now is dramatically different from the materials and, I would say, shape and form perspective than it was really even 20 years ago. What, what's happening in, in, uh, in building design and structure that is different these days, that is contributing to cleaner energy, more light, all of the things that we are looking for in places where people live and work.
1: So, so I think that there is a combination of things, uh, related to sort of where building and building design is now. A part of it is the recognition that, that, that one, we can build or create buildings, um, that, that meet multiple purposes. One, to have a convenient space, a space where we use as much natural lighting as possible, which reduces the amount of, um, um you know, sort of other lighting support that we need. So if we can reduce, we can increase natural lighting, then the amount of energy used to, to provide lighting is, is diminished. And we can think about ways to heat the building um, think about sort of insulation. We also think about sort of, uh, sort of how the buildings are oriented to make best use of, um, sunlight and, and other types of ways. I think we've sort of gotten a better handle of thinking about this as a whole system and, you know, and thinking about sort of how we do this also in a sustainable way. So I think just in like many other industries, as we, as, 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 as time has progressed, there's more innovative ways, there's more efficient ways to, to think about this. And at the end of the day, the cost benefit is if you can create a building that has a much more efficient envelope, that does have reduction in energy costs. Um, and that can be passed on to the underlying tenants or residents of that particular building. And that in and of itself is one of the things that we see where we think about sort of the amount of uh, uh, contributions from the building stock to carbon emissions is one of the key areas that you see sort of a, a, a focus being done. And then you have, see states like New York City, who's really thinking about sort of building codes as well as other types of policies and initiatives geared towards being able to green the building stock as much as you possibly can, mm-hmm. giving the amount of uh, um, carbon emissions that are basically allocated to to sort of our built environment. And every little bit that we can do um makes a big difference in finding financing mechanisms that allow that either at construction or retrofit is key to being able to accelerate the deployment of these particular technologies um throughout the marketplace
0: okay thank you very much for that let's talk about jobs and job creation especially in places like new york or any city or town of any significant size in the united states and around the world We need lots of people to manage and run these buildings, right? And so what are we doing to create jobs and train and uh, upgrade the skills of people who are already in building maintenance, um, like engineers and maintenance staff in cities and towns around the U.S.?
1: Well, I think that's been an ongoing effort over the last, you know, um, 10 to 20 years is to um, sort of provide uh, opportunities uh, for um, employment within sort of the overall building trades, but also if you think about uh, being able to manage buildings in the most efficient manner, um, I, from, from our standpoint, that just becomes part of sort of the, the necessary piece to it, right? So if you think about sort of the finance and capital pieces of it, where we spend the bulk of our time thinking about, they really think about us are, how do you finance these new um, technologies? How do we finance new upgrades into buildings? But at the end of the day, being able to manage and operate and maintain those buildings are incredibly important when it comes to the performance of the buildings. And as we think about financial instruments that basically are tied to the performance of the building, not just through the uh, introduction of a Lighting measure or water efficiency measure, having the teams that understands the overall operations of those particular buildings are incredibly important. And so there are you know a, a number of uh, entities that that do a really good job at doing this. And we we know that there is um, um, other uh, you know sort of sort of the continued training of of, of identifying uh, new building operators to to make that uh, to make that happen. But I think that's really sort of where you see sort of the world of finance and sort of this uh, energy efficiency and building stock really come hand to hand because it's really about sort of how you not only think about, you know, sort of the the upfront investments, but also about the operations and the continued performance over time.
0: Okay, thank you. Now you were recently quoted in a BizNow Magazine article regarding the use of technology and data to evaluate pricing and credit in sustainable infrastructure development. Please give us an example of the technology involved and how it influences the types of credit available to building owners and infrastructure developers.
1: Thanks. And, you know, what we're talking about is actually something I just alluded to, which is sort of, you know, this idea that once an, uh, an improvement is made, whether it might be lighting controls, um, whether it might be um, um, storage, uh, energy storage that is embedded into the buildings, the question becomes is not just the installation of the technology. The question then becomes sort of how you monitor that over time. And then how do you attribute that which relates to the under the use of it and potential payback? And, and so those particular types of technologies, whether they might be are incredibly important to thinking through sort of how do you make the upgrades into the particular building and who is going to benefit? So is this all being borne by the uh, owner of the buildings or the uh, operators of the buildings or is this by potentially the residents or tenants when it comes to sort of energy usage. And so those are some of the things where we where we look at sort of finance standpoint of how do you finance these particular types of upgrades and improvements? Who is the ultimate beneficiary and how do we think about a structure where we have whether we're sharing in the savings that are attributed or that are created from the energy improvements how are we sharing from the benefits of energy storage that's being created from the panels that might be on the roof or the batteries that are attached? Sort of how do we think about this in new ways to shift between the cost and also the benefit between landlords and homeowners or or, or renters or whether it might be in you know homeowners uh, as well as the utilities. So there's a way that we think about sort of building which lends into finance with these particular structures, um, and in some respects, the article that I was uh, that I that was part of and pleasure to be part of really just touched in sort of how those uh, can be made and what are some of the uh, thoughts related to uh, particularly that particular market.
0: Okay, good. Let's talk now about the politics and policy of urban sustainable infrastructure development in cities like Washington where you live and work, for example, and and, and any uh, large city uh, in the United States can you give us examples from your experience uh, one where policy and politics got in the way of sustainable development and we're not looking for names or or uh, cities uh, (laughs) specifically but just uh examples and one where they supported it
1: okay uh so you know i think it'd be be, you know sort of you know when we think about politics you know we, we we have uh we, we try to stay clear in politics we stay in the finance space uh and so our goal is really to think about sort of how do we operate within the confines of uh the programs and the markets that, that that exist and so our work as sustainable capital advisors is really around sort of uh sort of in three areas where we really try to target around uh you know sort of helping our clients developers execute projects where most of the time we spend on execution of Clean energy, sustainable infrastructure projects, and so what we see is one of the incredibly, you know, sort of beneficial, um, uh, you know, sort of policies that occurred occurred during the uh, earliest days of the Obama administration, uh, when there was, you know, sort of in sort of in the midst of the financial crisis, uh, there was legislation passed that basically changed the investment tax credits from being a tax credit to basically a cash move grant. So section 603. So one of the benefits of there basically said that you didn't need to have taxable income to receive the federal tax incentives. You could just basically have a project in operation and then you can submit, um, uh, you know, sort of request into Treasury and the US Treasury will get a cash payment. What that means is that in markets where there's a, um, uh, when you can't find entities who are making money and buying tax credits, it gives you the ability to have, um, to deploy and actively have projects. And given that tax credits can make up 30% of the underlying renewable energy project at the time, it was an incredibly significant source of capital that if you didn't have that available, the markets, renewable markets wouldn't hold. And so what you saw was an expansion of that ability in those particularly early days in 2009, 10, um, and, and 11 when that was the policy. But one of the things that we recognize since then is that that cash in lieu grant was not only important for that, for marketplace, but also was important for projects that were geared towards communities or municipalities. Municipal entities do not pay taxes, federal taxes, income taxes. So they themselves cannot actually benefit from tax credits. And so if you're looking about sort of the expansion of solar Um, expansion of renewable energy, the ability to have cash grants or that same policy that was enacted, you know, over, you know, 10 years ago can have a tremendous opportunity to be able to accelerate the deployment of these particular technologies. And so we see that sort of where there is this one thing where in one hand we had a solution that solved a particular problem around sort of market access. We now can think about that particular policy being used again in a way that expands opportunities. Whether it be for community organizations who are in, in New York or elsewhere across the country who are looking to do solar projects, instead of having to find a tax entity to own the project for a period of time, they themselves can execute a project now and it reduces barriers. Whether it is for projects that are tied to low-income customers who otherwise would have to look for a taxable income, now you can have a cash grant so that they can be on parity from a cost standpoint with other affluent owners when it comes to solar. And so we see this particular issue is not just a market access issue, but also an issue related to equity and inclusion and making sure that these types of technologies, solar technologies or energy efficiency to a lesser degree, but also these other sort of renewable energy, clean energy technologies are much more widely expanded to who can participate and who can get the true economic benefits from these very same provisions. And so that's an example of basically where we've done it once, in a particular scenario but now we have an opportunity to do it again to expand who can participate and have a much better um, overall uh, acceleration of this particular market when it comes to the deployment of clean energy and sustainable infrastructure projects
0: so what is included in or built into the biden administration's infrastructure programs uh, that are um you know sort of hung up in Congress at the moment, but hopefully it will come through in some form in the not too distant future that supports this type of development, especially in communities where, as you say, the the embedded wealth in the community is not significant as it is in other communities that may be competing for infrastructure opportunities. How can we support growth of communities that are looking for those types of opportunities to create more small businesses to bring in more infrastructure that will support a healthier lifestyle a better education for their kids and more good paying jobs
1: you know so i think the the current legislation that that's making its way um um through through, through, through congress uh, has has some things embedded in, in there so this you know basically this this cash grant Mm -hmm. Um, as an idea is one in some iteration that is being supported by a whole host of um, 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 participants in the underlying ecosystem, whether they are large residential solar developers, um, um, you see community organizations, you see environmental justice groups, uh, you see the capital and finance side, all identifying that as one of the um, uh, sort of targets when it comes to not only expansion of opportunity, but also um, an acceleration of deployment. Um, and, and I think that, you know, within, you know, the, the legislation, we'll see sort of how it shakes out at the end. But, you know, there will be a significant investment um, that's made. And so I think about it sort of in two, two pieces. There is the, um, you know, the, the pieces that are that are there that to help accelerate the deployment of existing technologies which I think is incredibly important. There are enough technologies that we have available that we can deploy to um, reduce and to, and to, to basically meet um, demand for these particular types of technologies, be it solar or energy efficiency, geothermal, you name it, within communities. Uh, that can be done now with the technologies we have. Uh, and so the question just becomes: How do you accelerate that out in certain certain parts of the parts of the country? And I think there is ways that that they are looking to do that. That can be provide sort of a combination of not only just public dollars, but also matching these public dollars with with other private capital. So the you know sort of the public private partnerships that that you that hear about it around so much, I think, is incredibly important to really um, sort of you know sort of amplify the amount of capital that's available. And so whether that's going through state energy offices or uh, support to green banks or green bank entities, whether that's utilizing the current suite of uh, devan- uh development finance institutions, CDFIs or credit unions, there's ways that we can move capital through at scale uh, that could really benefit. And I believe there's there there's pieces that the the, the current administration is looking to be able to deploy that. And I think, and overall, I think it's just a question of sort of, one, once you accelerate the deployment, then I think the opportunity becomes recognizing that there are these business opportunities. So it's enough to have one project, but you also need business supports. And I think that's where other agencies within the federal, um, whether the federal government, whether it be the Department of Commerce or Small Business Administration, have a role to play to support new businesses who are looking for 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 entry into this particular space, and I think that's the, the the space where I think that we have an opportunity now uh, to think about sort of how do we foster the ability for not just the existing companies but also newer entrants to come in and to play a role into um, meeting the needs, whether that's new service providers when it comes to the the developers and deployment of projects, whether it's new additional services related to, you know, new companies who are starting out as accountants who are serving or legal entities. I mean, it's sort of the whole sort of supply chain ecosystem. I think there's opportunities to be very intentional around ensuring that there are opportunities for new businesses. And then also I think there is an incredible opportunity here to think through to ensure that that communities that have been underserved, have a voice with regards to sort of how these projects are developed. And so I think that is really sort of the the idea around uh, what was called the Justice 40 Initiative within the federal government to really think about sort of in this clean energy transition that 40 percent of the benefits are going to uh, uh, communities of color, low income communities, um, other communities that have been sort of uh, under resourced and underrepresented you know, with regards to sort of the sort of sort of energy and sustainable infrastructure, and to be very proactive, intentional and thinking through ways to connect those together. And so I think that when you layer those together, I think there's an opportunity to do an incredible amount uh, that's being done, but is not solely for government to do. This is something that industry can do. Um, This is something that uh, sort of the entire ecosystem can get behind with regards to making sure that those have been impacted the most by uh, sort of energy injustice have a seat at the table, uh, more than the seat the table, uh, at the table, or at the table and made a table to be able to um, have uh, sort of opportunities to, to address these issues.
0: Okay, great. Now, listen, we've got about two minutes left, and you've talked about green banks um, and in a couple of your remarks. I'm not sure our audience really understands how a green bank operates and who's who, ha- who has the charter and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, if you'd like to give an example or just a general description of how a, a green bank is set up and what types of programs they might contribute to this kind of infrastructure development.
1: Sure, that's a great question. And actually, you know, when, when the term gets uh, used, green banks generally are not referring to a banking institution that takes deposits. Okay. Most of these are nonprofit entities who are set up and within states, um, either as a subdivision of the state or uh, or has been created, to really think about providing specific financing supports to um, clean energy activities within a particular state. So, as an example, one of the very first green banks created, at Michigan Saves, um, is set up to provide supports to the clean energy space within the state of Michigan. Hmm. What they do is they provide. Credit enhancement or support to other financial entities, whether they are banks or CDFIs or credit unions to make loans to individuals for energy, for uh, energy efficiency and solar. So they are provided, they are effectively acting as a catalyst. Other examples are the New York Green Bank, who's basically stepped into the breach, the New York City Energy Efficiency uh, Corporation. Um, as well as the Maryland Clean Energy Center in D.C. and a bunch of other places across the country. But they're all really thinking about sort of how do you leverage and utilize the precious public dollars that exist and combine that with other capital from private, from the private sector, to really meet the needs of uh, specific needs of clean energy activity within their particular communities. And so I think they have a play a really big role uh, with regards to sort of bridging this gap between public and private and can be very concrete sort of programs and products that are tied to really how do you accelerate and provide the greatest um, sort of opportunity to uh, meet the challenges of clean energy and and green opportunities, but also to do it in a a much more equitable, inclusive way as well. So they're incredibly important. And I think as we go forward, you'll see, um, I think there's around 20 in the United States now, you'll see uh, almost every state having some type of entity that plays that particular type of role.
0: Okay, well, listen, Trenton, thank you very much for your time today. We're, we're out of time for today's program, but I know we want to come back and revisit these, these uh, topics in, in the future with you, especially your experience on the SEAB uh, and see how, see how that unfolds. We've been talking today with Trenton Allen. He's the managing director and CEO of Sustainable Capital Advisors. And thanks again for your time. Sustainable Finance Podcast listeners can reach Trenton Allen and Sustainable Capital Advisors at the following email. That's info, N-I-N-F-O, at sustainablecap.com. That's info at sustainablecap.com. Please join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast.